Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The campaign against ISIS has gone well enough that President Trump wants to pull U.S. troops out of Syria. But there's more to the conflict in Syria than ISIS. And according to the organization Air Wars, non-combatants in Syria still face a lethal environment. Air Wars is a transparency project that tracks civilian casualties in Syria, Iraq, and Libya. They just released their annual assessment of 2018. And with me is Chris Woods, founder and director of Air Wars. He was with the BBC for many years. He's author of the book Sudden Justice about drone use since 9-11. Good to talk with you again, Chris Woods. Hi. Thanks for having me on. I wanted to start with your findings on Syria for 2018, and I think most people in the U.S. uh, think mostly and get news mostly about the conflict with ISIS, and that part of the war is winding down. And we also know that the Assad government has taken back uh, almost all key territories. So um, your assessment is there's still a lethal situation for noncombatants in Syria. What's, What's still going on? Uh, you're absolutely right, Jerome. In, in many parts of Syria, there is now some peace, uh, but in certain areas, uh, and in particular Idlib uh, and uh, Derazor, two of the big governorates of Syria, uh, civilians remain at significant risk of harm. And uh, across 2018, we tracked uh, more than 5,500 locally alleged Uh, civilian deaths from all that's just from international military actions in Syria Uh, and on top of that there were of course um, uh, civilians harmed by the uh, Assad government forces by uh, uh, so-called Islamic State uh, and by other militant uh, and terrorist groups within Syria as well so the the pace of violence is certainly declining in some places quite significantly But civilians, uh, many years now into the civil war, uh, remain at significant harm in particular areas of the country. How many countries still bomb Syria, or bombed Syria in 2018 anyway? It's a reducing number uh, within the U.S.-led coalition. We're now down to uh, the United States, the United Kingdom, France, uh, and Iraq, which now conducts airstrikes uh, within Syria as part of the coalition. On the Assad government side, uh, they are still supported by Russia and Iran. And then we have two unilateral international campaigns going on in Syria still, one from Turkey, which uh, led uh, a number of very heavy assaults against Kurdish forces last year, which really confused the picture because some of those same Kurdish forces were fighting uh, alongside U.S. troops in Syria. And also we have a unilateral Israeli air campaign, which is heavily targeting both Hezbollah uh, and uh, Iranian forces within Syria. So it's still a very complex picture with a lot of international forces still conducting air artillery strikes and on on the ground actions as well. And for civilians. Um, coming under fire in these places, it can sometimes be incredibly hard to determine who is responsible uh, for the violence. Uh, But violence, nevertheless, there is. I think most people don't think that there are eight countries still bombing Syria today. I mean, it's it's a lot of countries. uh, That's a lot of bombing. It is. uh, That's actually down uh, from 16 or 17 countries just uh, 18 months ago. Uh, We have seen the U.S.-led coalition contract significantly down. 
and and the violence uh, engaged in by Russian forces has pretty much stopped. Uh, that's been a significant development. Uh, the Russians, the Iranians, and the Turks uh, uh, concluded a ceasefire for the province of Idlib uh, back in September of last year. And really, since that point, we haven't seen a great number of Russian air or artillery strikes. There have been some activity by uh, the Syrian regime. Uh, and the regime is also uh, bombarding um, by artillery, ISIS-occupied areas uh, of uh, Deir ez-Zor. But the, the number of military actions has, has plummeted, but we are still talking about thousands of reported civilian casualties each year. One of the interesting results of your annual assessment of 2018 and the bombing of Syria and, and Iraq, I imagine, was um, the idea that the Trump administration and most people recognize that the Trump administration loosened some of its standards on, on, on bombing runs and they go with a little uh, looser thing than the, the, the Obama administration. And I thought the idea was that that was going to create a lot more civilian casualties. And your report uh, was interesting in this regard. Uh, explain what happened. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt whatsoever that we saw a huge jump in reported civilian casualties in both Iraq and Syria uh, in President Trump's first year in office. That's whether you use uh, our data, the, 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 the numbers uh, tracked by on-the-ground monitors or indeed by the U.S.-led coalition itself. Their official numbers show the highest number of uh, fatalities during 2017. There was some speculation that this was due to a so-called Trump effect. President Trump himself claimed that he had altered the rules of engagement to uh, make it easier to conduct strikes against ISIS, although I've spoken with senior U.S. military commanders who, who have queried that and, and said they don't recall uh, their rules of engagement being changed. They were changed, we know, by President Obama in his last weeks in office. That did have a substantial effect. Um, but when we modeled the data for 2018 uh, against uh, President Obama's earlier years, uh, uh, we found uh, that, for example, 2015, 2016, uh, we were seeing very similar numbers of casualties uh, to those we were tracking from US-led actions in 2018. And really what we think we saw back in 2017 was um, the, a, a cycle of the war, the intensity of the conflict as the, the great battles of Mosul and Raqqa took place to throw ISIS out of its, uh, the big cities it held. And that was what was driving predominantly those high civilian casualties. And the, 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 the level of, of civilian harm we're seeing under President Trump uh, now much more closely resembles what we saw under uh, President Obama before those big assaults began. So not really the Trump effect that some have claimed more, we think, a reflection of these broader cycles of war, uh, which get particularly problematic when these big urban assaults begin. Well, what takeaway do you get from that? Because it sounds like what you're saying is, if well, if there's an air war, a lot of people are going to die, no matter how careful you are. Well, that, that's been our argument for some years, and particularly these big urban campaigns uh, when the U.S. and its allies uh, began the assault on uh, Mosul back in uh, the back end of 2016, an assault that ended up lasting longer than the Battle of Stalingrad, uh, hundreds of thousands of civilians were still trapped in that city and uh, many were, were not able to escape. Uh, most were, thankfully, um, and there was significant civilian harm. 
we've seen militaries like the uh, US, like the British, like the French, make very strong claims about the value of precision strikes in, 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 in terms of protecting civilians on the ground. Our own data indicates that what protections there are from increased precision pretty much fall away once the fighting moves into these heavily populated urban areas. The problem is that militaries don't know where the civilians are when they start bombing. And um, the strikes are, are raining down on neighborhoods. Uh, it's impossible to observe the civilians before the attack. They don't know where the bodies are after the attack. And militaries themselves uh, have a mistaken view of a much lower civilian household than, than locals are themselves reporting out. Uh, and uh, indeed, the, the, the Washington Post uh, today has a big story on this um, related to a, a just declassified report, which is trying to understand this gulf between military uh, casualty estimates and the far higher casualty estimates uh, that are generated by organizations like uh, my own, by Air Wars. I'm talking with Chris Woods, founder and director of Air Wars, and we're talking about the 2018 assessment of civilian casualties in Syria, Iraq, and Libya. Coming up in a few minutes after the break, we're going to talk about what kind of deals that uh, military leaders make and to turn things over to democracies. Stay with us. Um, Chris, I wanted to get you to say a little more about um, why the – why – transparency isn't so transparent, I guess, is what you were getting at before. Uh, what is have, – have we learned anything about uh, – do, do governments improve when they report some of their data? How does – how has that worked over the years? We've been tracking uh, U.S.-led actions since 2014, since the war against so-called Islamic State. And we have seen really – quite significant improvements in U.S. military reporting over that time. Uh, It took the U.S. more than a year to admit its first civilian casualties. Uh, And uh, in the first year or two, we were were seeing just a tiny number of allegations uh, being confirmed, despite uh, hundreds of reported deaths from the battlefield, credibly reported deaths. Over time, and and really spearheaded by the U.S. military, we've seen significant improvements in the coalition reporting the civilian arm. They've moved over to a much more systematic approach. They have assessed uh, several thousand alleged incidents now and confirmed almost 1,200 deaths uh, on the battlefield of of civilians, tragically. Um, That is something, as as one senior um, American commander said to me a while back, that that he can't recall ever having seen in his lifetime, which is the U.S. reporting out significant numbers of civilian deaths during a a war. So we have seen improvements, and uh, when you compare what the U.S. has done with some of its key allies – Um, you realize quite how far the U.S. has come on this issue. So, for example, France, which is the second most active member of the coalition, still claims zero civilian harm from thousands of air and artillery strikes. That's no better than Russia, uh, which uh, claims not to have harmed a single civilian in Syria, uh, despite 40,000 airstrikes by its forces. Um, uh, locals say more than 7,000 civilians have died as a result of Russian actions. So the U.S. is, 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 is engaging on this. We would like to see further improvements, and we'd like to see that systematized. Uh, and we'd also like to see the U.S. not repeat this learn-and-forget cycle it's got into in recent years, where we saw this with Afghanistan. Significant lessons were learned about civilian harm and how to protect civilians, 
And then when the war against ISIS began, all of that knowledge appeared to be forgotten. Uh, and it's one of the things we'll be focusing on uh, moving forward is, is seeing if we can have the Pentagon uh, systematize these lessons and, and enshrine them within military thinking uh, and military good practice. Well, what kind of lessons are you talking about that people uh, knew in Afghanistan after a while and did not apply in Syria? There are, I, I mean, as I mentioned earlier, bombing, heavily bombing urban areas is inevitably going to lead to civilian harm. But also the way that militaries have traditionally uh, understood civilian harm is either by what they're able to measure themselves through uh, video analysis, uh, reporting back from pilots uh, and, and so on or uh, re really these quite mathematical formulae which are based on the amount of destruction uh, observed by satellite photographs of a building uh, and then a percentage estimate of how many civilians might be harmed there. What, what militaries haven't done generally is listen to the communities they're bombing and what Air Wars set out to do in tracking the war against so-called Islamic State was to, to report what communities themselves were saying and to offer provisional assessments on that. So we can tell you with some confidence what local Iraqi and Syrian communities have reported out. And we have uh, put a lot of effort into getting militaries to take that reporting by communities seriously. Uh, and we have had some success with that, particularly from the Pentagon, in accepting reports uh, from local communities of deaths and injuries. How do you get, get data from communities that have been attacked? We uh, Well, we, we've had people at, uh, on the ground in Iraq for several years. They're not deployed in the field. It is a very dangerous environment for us to deploy our researchers. What we do is we remotely monitor what communities themselves are reporting, often at a very local level. So uh, when, uh, a, a, let's say, a family home is, is bombed by uh, a belligerent, a family might post videos or neighbors might post videos. There might be um, a memorial page placed on Facebook. Uh, the, there might be a social media and media reports, often at a very local level, uh, reporting that harm. It doesn't get picked up m more widely than that, sadly, in a, in a war like Syria, where, where hundreds and hundreds of thousands have died. Sadly, few take, a, take notice of individual deaths anymore. But local communities themselves are reporting those casualties. And what Air Wars does is to capture that information, to permanently archive it, to make it um, available uh, for everyone to see and understand and then to alert militaries to those allegations. And we've, we've had some success in, in getting militaries to take note of, of such cases. I wanted to say a quick word about Libya. Uh, you do track what's going on in Libya. Um, it sounds like things, are, airstrikes are down in Libya. They, they were. We, we saw a, a reasonable fall in strikes in Libya. I think the concern we have for Libya is that the broader security situation is still highly unstable. We have multiple foreign belligerents and domestic belligerents bombing with impunity in Libya. As far as we can see, not one uh, um, uh, military actor in Libya, either foreign or domestic, including the United States, has accepted responsibility for a single civilian death in that country since the fall of the Gaddafi government back in 2011. The security uh, fears and concerns of ordinary Libyans cannot be overstated. It is a country still uh, in crisis with two competing governments. It's a mess. 
And so while the violence is down, the potential for it to spiral out of control again remains significant, as does the potential for extremists to gain footholds in that country, which in turn have then tended to lead to very significant military interventions uh, by the US and others. So we were pleased to see significant falls in reported harm for Libya, but the bigger problems in that uh, country have not gone away. Chris Woods is founder and director of Air Wars. He was with the BBC for many years. He's author of the book Sudden Justice about drone use since 9-11. If you're more interested in more information about Air Wars, check out their website at airwars.org. And thanks a lot for joining us, Chris Woods. Thanks for having me on. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about when militaries give up power. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. There was an interesting piece in the New York Times last week. It was Venezuela's best path to democracy, pay off the military. Its author is Michael Albertus, associate professor of political science at the University of Chicago. He's thought about the many authoritarian transitions that have happened over the years in his book, Authoritarianism and the Elite Origins of Democracy. Thanks a lot for joining us. It's great to be here, Jerome. Well, I enjoyed the piece. It made me think about what it would take to move the Venezuelan military over and um, kind of help with the transfer to power and and to democracy in Venezuela. And uh, old Marco Rubio was on Morning Edition today, and he said, well, what's going to do it is an amnesty. We've offered an amnesty. We think these guys are going to take us up on it. Do you think Marco Rubio's got a shot there? Well, you know, I mentioned this in my piece that Typically, uh, especially when militaries are this involved in politics and this involved in the economy, amnesties often aren't enough um, to to draw the military out of direct power. So in the particular case of uh, of Venezuela, the opposition leader, um, Juan Guaido, has also offered amnesties to the military. And as you can tell, the military has not yet bit on this. What is – in your piece, you talked about Chile, and it's instructive to remember that the military government, Augusto Pinochet, people probably remember there was a referendum and then they were voted out of power. But they got a lot of stuff to go. They got a lot. They got quite a lot, uh, a lot more than is on the table currently um, in, the, in the case of Venezuela. So in the Chilean case, the military not only got amnesties, they were put in direct positions of political power. So a lot of the top military brass were given senator seats um, 
initially those seats were uh, lifetime seats in the Senate, which granted them not only immunity, but Pinochet direct, got one. Correct. Pinochet himself got one. Um, the military was given a role in the constitutional tribunal that could oversee legislation um, that was inimical to their interests. And the outgoing military also used the results of that referendum that brought um, democracy to Chile to sort of reverse engineer an electoral system that would systematically and disproportionately overrepresent them in politics. All right. So that's that's way more than the Venezuelan military is getting right now. Um, how how hooked up with the economy do you think the the Venezuelan military is? People talk about their relationship with the oil company, which changed a lot when Hugo Chavez came in. Uh, do they have um, a stake in the economy that is giving them so much money that they they just um, they don't want to give that up? I think that's exactly right, Jerome. So no one has no one knows the exact numbers on this because statistics in Venezuela have gotten substantially worse in recent years, but we do know that the military is involved in a whole host of different industries. So not only do they run the crown jewel of the Venezuelan economy, which is PDVSA, the, the state-owned oil company, um, but they also preside over imports and exports, which is particularly important because, um, you know, Venezuela is imports most of the, the goods that are consumed in the country, and they also have this strange sort of dual track uh, currency system in which there's sort of an internal rate and then there's an external rate and the military profits from sort of arbitraging across these currency um, rates. There's The military is also involved in a whole series of housing projects. So they've been involved in a lot of construction uh, of new housing throughout the country. And there are plenty of reports of the military being involved in the illicit drug trade as well, uh, much of which comes up sort of through Colombia. I'm talking with Michael Albertus, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Chicago, and we're talking about some of the ideas in his piece in the New York Times. Last week, the Venezuela's best path to democracy, pay off the military. And, um, you, you know, when you're describing what kind of all the ways they're involved, it reminds you of other countries and other militaries that are highly involved in, in their economy. And maybe Burma is a good example where they, they just run all sorts of things in the economy and they do and they engineered a constitution and brought Aung San Suu Kyi to power but they didn't give her any power <laughs> it was, and say so, I mean that's the kind of power it seems like the Venezuelan military has yeah that's exactly right so um, Burma is actually quite a good sort of parallel to the Venezuelan case in a lot of ways so as you mentioned like uh, you know Burma, not only sort of the, the military passed this constitution in 2008, and and as part of that constitution, as a part of as in part of um, associated with a whole host of different reforms on the eve of transition to democracy, they transferred a lot of say manufacturing plants from the Ministry of in Industry to uh, the Ministry of Defense, and they got involved in a whole host of other industries and telecommunications, importing petroleum, and things like that as well. And so the military is still in a lot of ways sort of pulling the strings behind Aung San Suu Kyi, and that has important implications for what happens under democracy or what doesn't happen under democracy. Uh, and sticking with Latin American examples, I mean, El Salvador had a civil war, uh, but Guatemala had a civil war. The militaries were running the shows, basically, and they they stepped down, but they got stuff too. They got a good deal of impunity and and, and money. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. So that's true in both of those cases. And it's true in a whole host of other cases in Latin America as well. So, for example, in Brazil, right? Um, you know, there are a whole host of military leaders in Brazil that upon Brazil's transition to democracy in 1985 – almost everyone um, more or less received immunity. And many of them ended up returning to Congress. And now some retired military um, generals and other officers are helping to run uh, the Brazilian government, right? Mexico is another example uh, where, you know, a longstanding authoritarian regime and an authoritarian regime that tightly incorporated the military transitioned to democracy uh, or led an author- led a transition to democracy and then was reelected, right? So many of these militaries end up um, doing quite well for themselves under democracy. Where it really gets tricky is, uh, is down the road, I guess. After you've made that initial transition, you've got a system, you've got a constitution that often looks unfair to people. And and you get characters who can run against it. And this has happened time and time again across the planet. Right. Uh, which – give us an example of some countries that um, – where, we, where we're seeing kickbacks like right now of, of – uh, of bad constitutions and bad military transitions. Sure. Well, there are a whole host of of cases like this. Um, and a lot of times countries sort of try and change these constitutional legacies, try and change the role of the military and the economy and in politics and really struggle with doing so. So one example that's sort of close to close to Venezuela is, again, the Chilean case. So when Michelle Bachelet was reelected to power um, – most recently, she, prior to the current president, one of her promises, electoral promises, was to change the Pinochet era constitution. And while she was able to pass several amendments to the constitution, she was not able to scrap the constitution, despite quite a lot of popular support for doing so. And that was in part because the initial authoritarian-led deal created supermajority thresholds for change within, embedded within the constitution. So in other words, they made it very difficult to to change that legacy at all. In Hungary, I know Viktor Orban uh, ran on, I want to change the unfair constitution, and he is he changed it in a way that um, is really bad. I mean, the, you can get characters down the road that are not actually changing it for democracy, but for themselves, and take advantage of the unfairness of the constitution to, to make a haul. That's right. Well, you know, this is part of the populist trend, I would say, that's been happening in the last five years or so. In many countries around the world, you what you get is you get a democratically elected leader who is elected in a country in which the the rules are not particularly fair uh, and and sort of average voters aren't getting a fair shake and leaders appeal to the population in these cases and they say, look, part of the reason that you're not getting a fair shake and that you haven't fared particularly well is because of the way the system was set up to begin with and that has its roots in authoritarian in the previous authoritarian era. And many of these leaders are end up being sort of wolves in sheep's clothing. They are would, you know, they are sort of ostensibly democratic and are trying to hand greater power over to the people, but in fact they use these uh, reforms to further entrench their own power. 
So like Erdogan in Turkey seems to be a good example. Yes, he's a great example. In fact, Turkey also had one of these authoritarian constitutions. The military has been in and out of power repeatedly for over the course of decades. And they most recently went back to the barracks in 1983. Uh, however, they did so with a whole host of uh, favorable, you know, they wrote a favorable constitution and generate a whole host of favorable rules um, that enabled them to sort of rule behind the scenes, as it were. And one thing that Erdogan did for the first time in a lot of ways since 1983 was to upset that balance. And so there's been quite a lot of churn in Turkey as a result. And there have been large purges of the military in part because there have been attempted coups to try and push back against these reforms by Erdogan. A lot of people look at the South African constitution as a model constitution and uh, gave a lot of rights to people. It's a very interesting document. Um, But it also ended up preserving power for the white minority. There was a lot of things in it that, that the white minority got. Yes, that's right. So in the South African case is, is quite fascinating. And obviously, it's held up as one of these successful democratic transitions in the sense that the apartheid regime left power, then they left power peacefully, right? However, inequality in South Africa is just as high as it was under apartheid. And in terms of, um, you know, economic power, it's still the case that black South Africans earn much, much less than white South Africans. And white South Africans, um, you know, own, for example, the the vast majority of land in the country as well. And part of that is rooted in the nature of the Constitution. So the Constitution was this sort of delicate, um, this sort of delicate balancing act that was developed over the course of several years between the outgoing apartheid regime and the incoming uh, ANC, the African National Congress Party. And as part of that, the outgoing NP sort of created, they decentralized power in certain ways, uh, and they sort of created enclaves of power around relatively prosperous white, uh, white South Africans. Furthermore, they sort of um, cleaved off certain aspects of, uh, of social spending um, from the government such that it was more difficult for the government to engage in certain forms of redistributive policy. And as a result, what we've gotten is um, in part we have now a threat sort of from the, uh, from the left in the ANC that's sort of a populist party that's sort of challenging the ANC to push harder and farther against this legacy. And land reform is a gigantic issue. The, 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 the rules for land reform didn't get it done. Yeah, that's exactly right. So they tried to pass um, – South Africa has actually passed several – different land reforms since 1994, since the democratic transition, but none of them have really done much. They haven't moved the dial very far. And so there are, it's, this is a hot button issue in South Africa that repeatedly comes up. And, you know, again, it goes back to this constitution because uh, property rights are sort of sacrosanct within the um, South African constitution. And that's very difficult to undo. Are you surprised that more people don't study this? It seems like something that you could pretty much square up and figure out what is good and what is bad and how to go about this and and just drop it on a country like Venezuela and say, hey, here you go. Uh, Here's your rule book for this. 
Well, in some ways, that's right, that, that there are certainly lessons that we can garner from the past. On the other hand, it's not so easy to parachute into new countries um, with, with these, these deals and, and these ideas. And part of the reason is because in certain ways, they're unsavory or unpalatable. So, for example, in the Venezuelan case, you have the military, which is deeply entrenched. They're involved in, uh, in illicit activities. They have been involved in suppressing street protests, uh, jailing the opposition, a whole host of, of um, a whole host of illegal activities. And to give them not only amnesty but the reins to government is rather unsavory. And so, as you can imagine, that's complicated. So a lot of times it comes down to, I mean, people don't usually give amnesty for criminal activity. In, in, in South Africa, the, the, the people got amnesty, but they did not get amnesty for uh, murdering people and things. Right, right. Yeah, that's that's right. And so you have to, you know, the difficulty is when regimes are are this deeply entrenched, and when militaries are this deeply entrenched in in all these different activities, it's hard to know where to draw the line. And reasonable people can disagree about that, and that makes this very contentious. And is there um, a straight money <laughs> uh, deal that the the military that some of the military leaders in Venezuela are looking for that would be better than than what they're getting now? I mean, how do we uh, if we wanted to move this off the dime? What would what would it take? Do you think? Well, you know, so again, the military is so deeply involved in the economy that amnesty, it seems like, is just not enough. Uh, you know, of course, there's a distinction to be made between sort of the rank and file officers uh, versus the the higher levels of the military brass. And it's really the higher levels that are profiting from a lot of this. And so if you, say, take away their ability to run the state-owned oil firm, if you take away this um, dual currency system, if you take away their access to imports and, and exports, that really hurts their their bottom line. So I think at a minimum, you would need to phase some of those things out very slowly, and you would probably have to give them some continuing position within those different uh, sectors of the economy. So right now, when John Bolton is up there saying, well, we've got a lot of U.S. oil companies who are looking to get involved in Venezuela, that is not going to fly with some of these, the, the ears of some of these military guys. That's the last thing they want to hear. <laughs> um, so, so the U.S. approach might meet, might need to dial down a little bit on its um, oil thirst. Right, I think that's right. Well, you know, democratic transitions obviously happen in different ways, and in some in some cases, democracy is imposed from abroad. Right, but those are unusual cases, and those are. In some, there are successful examples of those cases, but oftentimes they're very messy and they don't work particularly well. And so unless the United States is willing to go down that path, which I don't think would be a particularly wise path to, to take, I think you, know, you have to think about a domestic solution, and, and a domestic solution doesn't involve a lot of these things. Michael Albertus is Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Chicago. He's the author of Authoritarianism and the Elite Origins of Democracy. He had a piece in the New York Times last week, Venezuela's Best Path to Democracy, Pay Off the Military. Thanks a lot for joining us. My pleasure. Coming up.
Coming up after the break, we'll talk about the effect of sanctions on Venezuela and Iran. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. U.S. economic sanctions on Venezuela were targeted largely at the country's top leadership until last week. Now the U.S. created a high-stakes game of oil sanctions and asset seizures aimed at toppling Nicolas Maduro from power. But if the plan doesn't work, the Venezuelan people face very bad outcomes. With me is George Lopez. He's professor emeritus of peace studies at the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies at the University of Notre Dame, and he has studied sanctions for years. Good to talk with you again, George. Thanks so much, Jerome. Um, George, what did you think about the Trump administration's strategy right now? It's it's kind of a complex one. There are oil sanctions that um, they're putting in place. They're also um, seizing assets of Sitco and things in this country. Um, what 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 is their bottom line here? Well, clearly, the bottom line is a transition to what at least Washington is saying is a more democratic and representative uh, leadership within Venezuela. But as you mentioned, and your last guest was just so articulate about, this is a tightrope, a very perilous walk. On the one hand, you have now, effective last week, constrained about $7 billion in uh, in Citgo, Petrolis uh, linkage, and the kinds of revenues that, that flow to Venezuela. And while it is also the case that these generals benefit from that. It's, it's also the trickle-down economics of the Venezuela economy to the extent to which an economy is left there that really hurts the, the people who are left on the ground. And uh, this kind of approach is, is also perilous because it, it needs an end game. <laughs> and, and the end game may be established politically with transition, but the economic costs are very, very difficult once you've imposed these sanctions and then you try to undo them. And right now it seems like the Trump administration strategy is we've got to get this done fast and we're going to get this done in a hurry and there won't be uh, pain for civilians. We'll just, we'll just get this done. Well, those are famous last words because the truth of the matter is now that you've bitten into the neck and heart of the Venezuelan economy, Mr. Maduro can jump up on the soapbox and say, Listen to Mr. Bolton and what he says about American oil companies coming to take us over. And whatever the protests against Maduro and how serious they are, Venezuelans don't stop being nationalists. And the notion of United States oil companies coming in to replace or take assets of uh, Petrolis is, is very, very dangerous. It's that rally round the flag effect that Castro, that Milosevic and others used for years in fighting off sanctions against them. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and I'm talking with George Lopez. He's Professor Emeritus of Peace Studies at the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies at the University of Notre Dame. And George is an expert on uh, sanctions policy. He's been studying sanctions policy for more than 20 years and was a consultant with the United Nations on sanctions policy 
as well. And we're talking about the effect that things are, the U.S. sanctions are having on Venezuela and the possible effects on Venezuela. What do you think the international community looks at the United States and thinks about the set of sanctions that, the, that we've put on Venezuela? I think by and large, politically, the United States has a very small window of time, given the European support for the assembly candidate uh, to, to help this transition move along. But once you're two weeks in or three weeks in, things get very, very tight. It's everything from the international bond market, which is really uh, used Venezuelan debt to sell hedge funds and various things that will hurt Americans and UK people. But the irony of this is the, the biggest concern is really to the Russians. They've loaned maybe 17 to $20 billion to the Maduro government in credits and various other things. And uh, the BBC reported this morning that they sent $1 billion in gold from the Russian bank in Dubai to land in Caracas to help Maduro endure this. And once you get this kind of stalemate and external back and forth about gold and money, the U.S. is in uncharted territory right now. Uh, so um, what about China? How do you think China's feeling? They've got the same kind of debt issues with uh, Venezuela. Yes, they do, but they don't have the financial movement and flexibility that the Russians do. And the Russians also have a stake in this in that they've been so strong since the U.S. intervention in Libya about external powers not toppling uh, duly elected leaders, even if the election was dubious. So it may very well be that the Russians take this to the Security Council and pose even a greater crisis politically for the U.S. Uh, where, where, where's the diplomacy here for on the U.S. side? I mean, it would seem like that the United Nations, um, you, you know you, you don't have Russia and China on board on this thing, and it's going to be uh, something you can't go long term on once again. No, that's true. And the demise of U.S. use of the Organization of American States has really cost us in a situation like this. The uh, lack of strength of uh, democratic governments coming and stepping up and saying we're right with you in this as a coalition. We really need a, a negotiation, a high level internal negotiation among Venezuelans that can take some time to mature. And, and the, it's really being played out in the streets. And that's the difficult dynamic for real change. I wanted to swing over and talk a bit about Iran and the secondary sanctions on Iran. And I was reading the Washington Post piece the other day about it. And and it really is amazing to think that a U.S. ambassador comes into Germany and the first thing he says is, well, you know, um, thanks for letting me in here. It's great to be the ambassador from the U.S. I would like all German companies to get out of Iran right now. And um, that that was like his his first greeting to the country of Germany, and the, since then they've gone out and the diplomats take meetings with com uh, companies, and the and then they say to them, "Let's get out of uh, Iran. You should be getting your business out of Iran." It it must be a really weird thing to have diplomats out there telling uh, telling businesses in other countries where they can and can't do business. It it is unprecedented, but it's also the latest sort of physical expression of what Europeans have been concerned about since our leaving of the Joint Comprehensive Plan for Agreement, and that is that secondary sanctions are considered not just bad form, but a real violation of internal sovereignty. It's one thing to be in alliance with a country in mutually imposing sanctions, and then each country holding their companies accountable. 
it's another for one country to move beyond its own subsidiaries in a second country, but in fact to go after companies that just don't seem to get on board because their own economics and politics doesn't agree. And the vehicle that the U.S. has used very smartly in some respects, but has also cost us in public opinion in Europe, is they've gone after the banks that have financed the trade from European companies to Iran, even if that company or bank does not have many dealings in the United States. And so while the U.S. has said we've not imposed any sanctions on agricultural goods or humanitarian goods getting into Iran – If you're a company that's selling agro products to Iran out of Germany, but your second stage translation of currency is through a bank that has affiliates in Iran, then the United States is going after your currency transaction. And it bounces back then to the visit to the agro business in which you're told you shouldn't be doing this. But the real vehicle of this is the is the bank exchanges. And when the French and Germans created this week this INSTEX, the attempt to get around the banking system. That's an interesting investment and currency movement opportunity that while it's only going to deal with a small number of suppliers to Iran, is really an interesting thorn in the side of America's understanding of its role as the dominant currency in trade in the world. And it, it was interesting to see the reaction to Instex in the in the public in the news. There was a lot of people who thought that this trading regime was the thing that's going to bring down the dollar, and uh, with, this is the end of the United States uh, as a dominant currency. And there's other people who think, well, this is just a rinky-dink thing that won't even satisfy the Iranians and won't even get the Iranians the kind of trade that they expected out of the deal. Uh, how do you react to in the Instex? Well, as most reactions of that type go, the truth is somewhere in the middle. In terms of the Iranians, it's much more politically important to see the Europeans creating a new special vehicle for continuing exchange in these kinds of transactions than it is in terms of its big economic impact in Iran, although every positive impact counts for them at this stage. No, it's not the beginning of the end of the dollar as the currency of exchange, but I think it's important to see that this kind of action by the Europeans has to be judged alongside the creation of the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, for example, uh, just a few months ago, in which 80 nations joined together to find a way to not use the dollar in business and goods transactions, partly out of concern that the American government didn't want to participate in the TPP, but also because of the continued reach of Treasury into secondary banks doing exchanges where if I'm an Asian trader, I may not know that this secondary bank has small dealings with North Koreans. And so it's it's a thorn in the side. It's a marker in the in the sand. and, And we ought to not take it lightly, even if it doesn't have immediate and strong impact on the place of the dollar and international concern currencies. Uh, what the administration's really doing is a short-term kind of um, thing. They want a short-term gain in their relations uh, with Iran in exchange for risking the dollar as as a dominant currency, watching the slow erosion of the dollar as the, the world's global currency. Well, it invites other regions, maybe even some Latin American states, as we were talking about Venezuela just before, to seek alternatives through financing their trade through banks that either don't deal with the United States 
or have the strength of currency not to have to finance these through the dollar. And that is significant because that kind of approach wasn't in vogue three or five years ago. If you get a third or fourth region of the world that wants to do this because of a extraterritorial, extraterritorial reach of U.S. sanctions, then you're in a different ballgame. Um, before we let you go, George, I mean, the old saw about sanctions is that you use it in combination with diplomacy. Is this something that we've just uh, thrown out the window? That's certainly been the maximum pressure approach of this administration. Uh, there doesn't seem to be a major international crisis that uh, doesn't warrant sanctions in their view. And they believe that a coercive pressure improves your own bargaining position in the United States, but B, the more the coercive pressure looks like it's working economically, there doesn't need to be a political uh, dialogue because you're marching soon to capitulation of the target. And, and that's a very wrong-headed approach. We often say that sanctions are meant not only to enrage the target, but to find a path to engage them. And the latter is really missing in U.S. policy at the moment. And unfortunately, we have some advisors in Mr. Bolton and Mr. Pompeo who believe in the sledgehammer, but not the uh, documents that come out of the bargaining that the sledgehammer may initially give you an opportunity to discuss. Um, very interesting, George. We're certainly seeing it in uh, Iran and in Venezuela. Thanks a lot for joining us, George Lopez, Professor Emeritus of Peace Studies at the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies at the University of Notre Dame. Thanks for joining us and talking about Iran, Venezuela, and U.S. policy on sanctions. Tomorrow on Worldview, we are going to talk more about global oil politics in the Middle East, South America, and beyond. We'll talk about the Trump administration's strategy with Antonio Yuha. She's the author of the tyranny of oil. Hope you can join us tomorrow for Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida and Char Dastin. And thanks to Jenny Friedland and Ashish Valentine for production assistance. Mike Gilmore engineered today. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.